0: about to hear my conversation with Richard Pan. We talk about his formative years and how he switched from being an engineer, getting into investment management. We also talk about the importance of ESG to his philosophy, how to approach the Chinese markets, and we finish by getting some recommendations. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnurr and I'm delighted to be here with Richard Pan. Richard is the CIO of Global Capital Investments at China AMC, one of the largest asset managers in China. Uh, Richard is also the lead portfolio manager of the McKinsey All-China Equity Fund. Richard, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation, Richard. Let's get started uh, with some of your background. And where I'm really interested is your early formative years in China. Give me a sense for what it was like to grow up in China during that time. Uh, And with a specific uh, thought to investment management, how how did that transition happen?
1: Well, that's a very big question. Um, I grew up um, in in Wuhan, in that area, and you know the Wuhan. We all know it now. Why not? It's become famous because of COVID-19. Right. Um, yeah, it's a big city. Um, my parents, they are working as a const- and engineers uh, to build the Three Gorge Dam. Okay. And in that environment, uh, back to 1980s, I don't know what I want to do in, in a university. So after I uh, applied to my father, uh, he strongly suggested me, hey, son, you should follow my suit to become an engineer. Then I went to Wuhan University for electrical engineering major. And after I went to the school, I realized, hey, this is not what I want. Mm. Back to 1990, it's impossible for me to switch from, from the current major to another major so I spent four years in a school, I'm looking for, uh, I try to f- find out what kind of areas I feel interested in. And at that time, China experienced a new round of reform and further opened the door. Mm-hmm. So in 1992, when I was um, second year in a school, the door is opening in China, further opening in China. And, and I began to realize, hey, I want to you know, I want to have some touch on the real economy. Probably I can become a successful business person instead of engineer, because engineer, because my major is very focused on electricity engineer. So mm-hmm. after graduation, most of my class base will work for some power plant. So I don't want to work for power plant. However, after graduation, <laughs> I work for power plant. I see. Because because this is my major. So in the two years, and I spent two years in a power plant, actually it's very advanced power plant, probably the most advanced power plant in China, back to 1994 to 1996, I, I made my decision, hey, I want to switch my major. So I decided to uh, to to go through an <clears throat> examination for for master degree of economics, because there was no MBA program back to 25 years ago. So the only way for you know for a young student who can get in the business world is with a master degree in economics. So that's why I pursue a master degree in economics um, after two years working in a power plant. So I spent around two or three years, uh, two years for master degree. After that, I think I was extremely lucky. I joined the best or the largest investment bank in China. Okay. Back to nineteen ninety-eight, I joined and at that time it is it was the, the largest investment bank in China. I work for MA and I and IPO department as investment banker. So I started my career in the financial world finally. I successfully switched my career from engineer to a financial guy to a investment banker. I That's, see. It's 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 big it's big it's it's big, you know, it's big change. Uh, also, I would like to say, it's a big achievement for an engineer. For sure. For a junior, it's a big achievement. So I, I spent three years working on IPO and m a deals in China. That's very, I would like to say, it's very. I have a lot of aspiration uh, back to 22, 23 years ago, working on the deals, helping, you know, I want to become a deal maker to help. The company to sell their asset to help the investors to buy their asset. After two or three years, I think, hey, I don't want, I don't want to listen to other people's. I want to have my own judgment. I don't want to work as a middleman. I want, you know, I want to play the game by myself. So I began to realize, portfolio manager can be independent thinking mm. and act independently. The performance measurement is market-driven, 100% market-driven. You are wrong, you are right, the market can tell everything. So then I think um, in, in 2001, I, I, I believe I was very lucky. I successfully find a, a job opportunity to, uh, as a portfolio manager, uh, focus on m and a strategy, because I have um, a banking background. And so I, I began to, to manage the portfolio um. And in two thousand one, so let's you know. I, I've, so from two thousand one, I have become a portfolio manager. So in the last twenty years, I managed portfolio for almost twenty years. That's how you know. That's, that's how that's how my career developed. Her.
0: I look forward to getting into uh, more about your portfolio manager responsibilities, how you view the world in just a moment. But I wanted to circle back on a few things that you mentioned, and I'm curious. Uh, so you said in the uh, mid to late '90s you went back for a master's in economics. Uh, did you do that within China, or did you go uh,
1: in China in the same university, also Wuhan University? So, so my bachelor degree and my master degree is the same university.
0: So interest, I'm interested in in the content of the the, the economics within uh, within Wuhan at that time. Was the was the development um, would it be similar to what you'd experience in western uh, economic programs or was it uh, particularly uh, different in some way
1: um very similar it's very similar to okay. uh, to western uh, to western countries in terms of economics the curriculum Although we have some political economics uh, curriculum uh, for instance uh, the maximum curriculum and the political economics right but I spend most of my time focused on the Western side. Okay, all right. On Western economics and finance, accounting, financial analysis, this kind of stuff. Makes sense.
0: Um, and also, I, I'm curious, you, you started, uh, or you initially went into investment banking and M&A and IPO. What was the state of uh, mergers and acquisitions and IPOs in China in the late 90s and early 2000s? Um, my, You know, naive Western view is that there wouldn't have been a lot of IPOs or mergers and acquisitions, but but
1: perhaps I'm missing something. Oh, yeah. Uh, In the late 1990s, uh, the major players in the market was private company instead of state-owned enterprise. Hmm. Because uh, state-owned enterprise, uh, at that time, uh, the perception is too out of date. They don't have aspiration to go public, but private company, they have very strong aspiration to go public. So the market is, a lot of times, stock market is not that big. Right. In terms of market cap, it's only 5% compared to, to current market cap. But it's very, it was very dynamic because major players uh, and private companies. Also, investors are very diversified. Of course, always uh, dominated by retail investors. But, you know, but at that time, it's, you know, investors are very diversified.
0: At that point, was the Chinese market um... Solely domestic? Uh, solely domestic. At that time, solely domestic. Okay. And maybe, maybe we can use that thread and, and transition to talking about portfolio management, what you do now. But it, as, as, uh, as the market matured, so you started in 2001 uh, and, and you, you're clearly uh, still involved in, in portfolio management today. Um, how has the market dynamic and the maturation of the Chinese uh, market impacted the way that you think about investing?
1: Oh, well, that's a very, very good question. Because I experienced the market change in the last twenty years in China. When I joined, when I began my career as a portfolio manager, the market movement is quite is quite retail driven, mm-hmm. retail investor driven, and and momentum driven, and people don't understand uh, people don't understand the fundamental investor uh, investment most of the most of the investors, in my opinion, they are momentum driven right. instead of fundamental analysis driven. Just, <clears throat> that was what happened twenty years ago. but right now, right now, if you talk with this uh, investor in China, hey, are you guys m- m- momentum driven investor? That's sort of uh, insulting to them. Mm. So almost everybody can name their fundamental investor right now in China. okay. so you can tell. You know, you can tell the psychology and this kind of uh, mentality change fundamentally.
0: And, and does that require you to change the way that you think about investing and think about uh, managing your portfolio, going from a momentum retail-driven stock market to what I would say is more of a fundamental uh, market now?
1: Um, yes, it's definitely a significant change or reshape uh, my thinking process. And that's why uh, also after a couple of years working in China, I want to further broaden my vision to, to know the outside world, to become more internationalized and more institutionalized. So that's why after four years as a portfolio manager in China, I began to, to I decided to uh, drop my work, drop hmm. my job and uh, to pursue an MBA degree in Georgetown University. Ah, okay. So, if from 2005 to 2007 I studied at Georgetown also I work for boutique investment bank Morgan Keegan is a investment bank and headquartered in Memphis but I work in in Atlanta office focus on some internet companies uh, focus on US internet companies <laughs> that's a very interesting experience in in when I was working with Morgan Keegan and also when I studied at Georgetown University very I think it's a very exciting experience and really open my open my eyes and let me understand and the world <clears throat> is not only about the financial market, but also about about the culture of the world, about the importance of diversification, about the you know, a different thinking process, and how to appreciate the people with different perspectives.
0: Great. We'll spend a ta- uh, bit of time now just describing how you approach the markets uh, today. That's great background. So you're sort of started in this momentum driven uh, market that was uh, maturing. Sounds like you were maybe ahead of the curve by diverting and spending some time in the U.S., uh, both for education and at, um, and at the investment bank uh, to get that sort of more fundamental experience potentially. Um, so tell me, how do you approach the Chinese market today uh, and how do you think about picking stocks?
1: Um, we still believe, and right now, China equity market is still a little, bit, a little bit inefficient and volatile. So we think the best way, in my opinion, of course, it's my way, it's not, I, I'm not sure what, <laughs> the best way, but actually it's a good way for me sure. to uh, to approach the market is we stick to a dissipated investment process. Because my opinion is the human beings sometimes are not reliable. mm mm-hmm. But a process, a rigorous process should be reliable. So I highly rely on process driven, a process driven investment instead of start manager driven investment. So I have my team, I and we set up um, a rigorous research and investment process. We, we follow this process. And then um, for instance, we have a stock screening model, quantitative stock screening model initially. Then our fundamental analyst, and also plus our ESG, animals, they work together uh, to, further, to, to, to do further research and to, to narrow down the stocks from, from 300 names to 100 names. Then I will be more focused on these 100 names to build up my portfolio.
0: So you have a, a quant screen that narrows your universe to about 300 stocks. Uh, and then uh, how would you describe the fundamental analysis that your team does? Uh, are they looking? Are they, you know, more traditional growth managers, more traditional value managers? Is a core or a combination, or do you view the world a different way?
1: Um, I describe myself in this way: um, growth driven, growth driven, mm-hmm. growth at at a reasonable price. Garb, almost actually, almost every single uh, China-based asset uh, portfolio manager. We'll tell you guys, hey, we're growth, we're growth at at a reasonable price. Sure. The problem is the most difficult thing is how how can you know the intrinsic value intrinsic value of the company? This mm-hmm. yes, is the valuation is the key, because everybody everybody will tell you, hey, because China grow very fast, and we have to to pick, to pick the best company, you know, with very strong growth momentum, growth potential. So I think I think the the most difficult part is to how to identify growth potential and mm. how to how to decide the intrinsic value of this, of the growth companies. That's the key.
0: And, and how do you go about doing that? I mean, it, it's clearly challenging. It's what everybody else is trying to do as well. What, what, uh, you know, I'm sure you do fundamental analysis. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how your team is, uh, how big your team is, how they're structured uh, and, uh, and some of the talent there.
1: Okay. Um, in my team, uh, because as you know, China MC is a big company. Mm-hmm. Uh, China MC, in China MC, we have a centralized research platform with more than 60 equity analysts on the ground and also 20 quantitative analysts. This is a shared research platform. And in the meanwhile, because um, my department is more focused on overseas institutional investors investing in China, we have a longer investment horizon and we're more focused on fundamental. So we have a small team, small research team. In my team, we have eight fundamental research analysts plus three ESG analysts. So in my team, and also we have several portfolio managers. In my team, we strategically focus on some sectors or areas, for instance, consumption upgrade. This is a long-term trends. We focus on consumption upgrade, healthcare, Digital economy and advanced manufacturing, and 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 the carbon neutrality. Is, uh, for instance, renewable energy and and, and solar power. This is are the areas we are fo- we are focused on.
0: It sounds like a bit of a thematic um, uh, approach where you you identify big themes and, and then you look for for companies that uh, exploit those themes. I'm curious, how do you come up with these five themes? You don't have to go through them individually and explain them, but I'm just wondering what the idea, what the process is to identify those overall themes uh, and 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 then how do you think about finding companies that, to fulfill that?
1: Okay. Uh, because we think uh, uh, in terms of GDP, China is only 10,000 US per capita, so we think For that, we'll increase in the next 10, 20 years from 10,000 to 20,000, eventually maybe 30,000 US dollar per per capita. So when Chinese people become rich, they will definitely upgrade to consumption. This is a mega trend. It will play for at least one decade, two decades. Also healthcare, we know when healthcare expenditure as a percentage of GDP in China is only 6% is much lower than OECD countries. OECD countries on average, healthcare expenditure as a percentage of GDP is roughly 10% to 12%, and US extremely high, 18%. So mm-hmm. we think expenditure on healthcare will continue to go up. Also, uh, as you know, China is the largest uh, carbon emission country in the world, account for 28%, more than 28% of global carbon emission. But we see chi- Chinese people, also, the leadership has very strong aspiration to lower to cut carbon emission. And, and for instance, China has the largest solar power uh, installment globally, and more than eighty percent of solar panel in around the value chain made in China, globally made in China. So we see the opportunities in that area in the solar park panel, in the battery, in the renewable energy. So in that space, we think can can last for at least one or two decades, so that's the reason we have strategic focus on these areas. But in the meanwhile, we want to keep a balanced portfolio because we think the opportunities are everywhere. But our team mainly focus on these areas, but this does not necessarily mean we will miss other opportunities because we have a centralized shared research platform. For instance, in the the last one year, uh, the shipping, container shipping price, increased by three, four times, Yes, and we don't have shipping analysts in my small team, but we have a shipping analyst in a in a bigger team in the shared research team, and and those guys tell us, hey, hey, because of the r- recovery of the U.S. economy, because of supply chain a disruption, the shipping the container shipping price increase, and you guys can invest in shipping companies, trade at two or three times PE, two or three times PE ratio, and wow. out of favor, out of favor, let's. So so that's how we see the opportunities come from.
0: So there seems like there's a sort of a call it a strategic uh, focus on the, the big themes and finding companies that, that participate in those larger themes. But because of the shared research platform, you're able to incorporate some of the more tactical decisions as well and be well covered. Uh, it sounds like a, a fairly um, good approach and you, you have good coverage over the entire universe. Uh, I'm curious. When you talked about the big themes uh, within uh, carbon, you, you specifically talked about leadership uh, looking to reduce the carbon footprint. How much do you think about government interaction uh, in the markets uh, when you think about where to invest or where not to invest? Maybe.
1: And you mean in the in the carbon in the carbon, neutrality in that space or in general,
0: just general. So I mean, you, carbon is probably more of a positive. Or traditionally thought of as a positive, where uh, there's investment going on. Clearly, there's been some uh, recent events with things like Didi, uh, the ant group, uh, and then most recently the uh, educational, for the for-profit educational uh, business, where the government's intervene um, in a manner that's um, depreciated value from the from the stock market. I guess in general, how do you view government involvement when making investment decisions?
1: Uh, okay. Um... Actually, we when we think about investment, when we think about the trends and what's the investable ideas, we should understand, we should understand what's the, the government stance. Right now, there's two major, let me say two major uh, urgencies or mandates from government. Number one, the rising inequality in China. As we know, in the last uh, in the last 30, 40 years, China's GDP increased by more than 40, 50 times. It's right. a significant achievement. However, inequality continue to continue polarize. you know, the, the entire society. is 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 more like it is, is like US and, and and Canada market, you know, polarized society. The rich become richer and the poor still poor. Mm-hmm. So government have very strong urgency to you know, to, to, to tackle this inequality. And another, another problem, I think, is even bigger problem is uh, the birth rate continue to go down. Right. Continue to go down. The reason behind the, 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 the dropping birth rate is because of the education system. Education system is too competitive and the housing price is, is, is way high. So the young, the young couples, they, some of them, they don't have the courage, they don't have the confidence to give birth and kids because the education burden is too high. I see. And also it's not that easy to afford um, a house or even a flat in the mm. in status. So that's why we see the government, the Chinese government has this, you know, very you know, strong urgency to tackle this problem because if if government does not do anything, the inequality will continue to be widened, and also and the birth will continue to go down. Sure. And the population will shrink sooner or later, and we know this is a big problem. So when we think about investment, we have to follow this trend. You know, to understand the government government's policy, to understand the government's regulation. So that's why I'm, I'm 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 not surprised at all when the government has this new regulation to forbid uh, the for-profit education for K for K-12, for K-12 edu- um, education. So I'm not surprised at all because um K-12 education you know increased a lot of burden, increased right. inequality and uh, for uh for, for Chinese for Chinese people. Also the end financial, and financial um, and financial is a different story, but in terms in terms of the of the regulation or in terms of the of the let me see, because from day one, from day one, and financial does not have license to do settlement in China. Did not have right. license. Then after several years, the government grant End financial license. Okay. So and, so and you can tell how things evolve in China. Sometimes, sometimes you know, at the earliest stage, government does not regulate. This does not necessarily mean they will not regulate, because just because, just because at initially the government hey you encourage competition, encourage, encourage. Then after a while, because you guys don't have license, and and, and government want to, to, to you know to do something. So we understand. We understand, you know, it's kind of dynamic, and we, yeah, we want to, we want to be, you know, I'm not saying politically correct, but i I want to say in this way, we want to, you know, to follow, to follow the big trend, to do something is good for the society, is good for the people, is good for, uh, also good for the investors, because the government think in that way.
0: Right, so that uh, leads you to avoid things uh, that are sensitive to housing and education in this case and 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 have uh, climate and and carbon as sort of a major theme one thing that you you mentioned when you were describing your team is the three e s and g analysts uh, I think that might surprise some people uh, listening uh, in the west uh, particularly um, given China's uh, maybe not well deserved or perhaps well deserved uh, um, uh, areas where environmental, social, and governance doesn't seem like it's uh, as uh, as mature, call it in the rest of the world. Tell me about those three ESG analysts, how ESG uh, is integrated in your process, uh, and, and what uh, what some of the
1: implications are from that. Well, that's a very good question. Thank you for this question. When we, we China MC is the first of, uh, full service China, China based asset manager to sign up UMPRI hmm. back to 2017, Back that, we have a lot of pushback internally, and we and and, and we and we decided to 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 move forward because we believe ESG is the right thing to do, is the right thing to do, has right. nothing to do with performance. Even even ESG drag performance, we have to go ahead. Okay. So we decided to 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 join UNPRI to you know have strong commitment on ESG. Uh, for our company, uh. In our company, we try to integrate, integrate ESG in the research, portfolio management, in the risk management and company engagement in the whole process, especially within my, within my department. Uh, because the reason we put the ESG analysts, three full-time ESG analysts under my team, because we think, we think the major driving force of the ESG investment is not ESG analysts is need portfolio manager. Hmm. If portfolio manager does not really believe in ESG, the ESG cannot be properly implemented or integrated within an organization. So that's why we put the ESG analyst on my team, on my team, and our ESG analyst can evaluate fundamental analyst perf- uh, performance. And and and, and, and also uh, we have we spent a lot of time. Actively engage with Chinese companies in our portfolio or potentially can be added to our portfolio because we don't want to be a silent financial investor. We want to be an active, active analyst. And we try in the last three years, I spent a lot of time talking with Chinese business leaders to tell them, hey, ESG is very important. This is the right thing to do. You guys have to improve your ESG performance. Initially, we put a lot of pushback. Hey, hey, Richard, ESG is bullshit. It's it's kind of of a Western concept. Yeah, it's done the work. And right now, after three years, our consistent push and education, more and more Chinese business leaders, they understand the importance of the ESG right now. And of course, course, this is more like a top-down approach. Sure. Because the president Xi also, you know, in China, he promised China will reach carbon neutrality by 2060. So if yes. I talk about carbon neutrality to, uh, to the to the management team in our portfolio companies, everybody will agree with that. So I try to, you know, so in the last one or two years, the awareness of the ESG increased significantly in China, and we can see this result. So and 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 I'm very happy to see this. To see that, to see this happen, and I will try going forward. I will try my best uh, to continue to engage with the Chinese uh, business leaders to improve their ESG performance. Great, and um, in, in
0: of the environmental, social, or governance, um, where do you where do you think China has the most to improve? I mean, you talked about the top down push. Uh, you know, in in environmental, clearly the the carbon neutrality. Uh, from Xi Jinping is is important. Um, you talked about inequality. Uh, I'm sure that trickles down to businesses as well on more of a social side. Uh, is governance? Uh, you know, traditionally, when I think of uh, governance in emerging markets, specifically in China as well, uh, tends to be uh, a little bit um, lesser than some of the Western standards. Are you seeing? Are you seeing that? Do I have? Have I characterized that correctly? Or or what are you see uh, as far as the biggest opportunities are within ESG?
1: And um... Corporate governance improved significantly in the last 20 years. Mm. Back to 20 years ago, actually, we have no idea about what's the concept of corporate governance. Right. The first time I know corporate governance, what's that corporate corporate governance? <laughs> <laughs> then right now, right now, every investor every institution investor and the Chinese companies, uh, uh, the management team, they know the importance of corporate governance. Mm. And the government also has some requirement. Uh, for, the, for the corporate governance, for instance, uh, for all the public companies in China-Asia market, the, the uh, independent directors has to be more than one-third hmm. on the board. This is the requirement, the basic requirement. Uh, and also, um, company has to disclose the related transactions between the major shareholder and the company itself. To see, is there any potential, you know, profit shift between the comp- public companies and the right. major shareholders? That always happened historically. Always happened, but right now, it's that uh, then it's it's under uh, is under tightening re- regulated by the government. So we see this improvement. We see this improvement. However, we are not there yet. We are not there yet. And comparing to the highest the highest standard of corporate governance. Uh, we see still, you know, Chinese companies still have room to improve and we, s- we are very, you know, uh, it's very sad to, you know, unfortunately, we see some, some, some Chinese companies, they have some scandal, for instance, sure. Lucky Coffee and, mm-hmm. and, and almost 10 years ago, I remember, Sino Forest, mm-hmm. in Canada, I remember that well as well, <laughs> yeah, Sino Forest. Sino Forest yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That sounds like it's improved a little bit since Sinophore's, uh days, so uh, we can take a little bit of comfort in that. I'd like to shift now to portfolio construction. Uh, so we talked about the, th- the different themes, your fundamental analysis. How do you think about putting that portfolio all together to ensure that your risks are well balanced? Do you pay attention to the benchmark? Uh, and then I'll add on a third question there, which is I know that you invest in uh, both A-share, H-share, and ADRs. How do you choose between the different vehicles uh, to invest in?
1: Um, so let me answer this, uh, the third question first. Sure. Um, actually, we don't have any preference uh, of, of A, H, ADR, because we we want to invest in in the best company in China, the high-quality company in China, because we claim us as a quality investor. We invest mm. in high-quality companies. So we focus on high quality, so no matter where they are listed, China A, H, ADR, doesn't matter. However, and with and for most of the internet companies, e-commerce companies, they are only listed in, in H-Share in Hong Kong and ADRs. So that's why for our old China strategy, we do have a lot of exposure to internet and e-commerce companies. Obviously, we, can, we only invest in H and ADR for this internet and e-commerce companies. For Chinese consumer names and some industrial, especially for renewable energy names, most of high quality renewable energy names, including solar panel and battery names, they are listed in domestic Asia market. So that's why we invest in the the renewable companies, mainly in China Asia market. And also high-end consumption names, they are also listed in China Asia market. And right now, right. right now, our portfolio, roughly two-thirds of our of our asset invest in China A, and one-third invested in, in HCR and ADR right now, because we see and uh, we see the risk of the uh, we see the r- regulatory risk uh, of the education sector, of the e-commerce mm-hmm. sector from the government side. And, the, and, and roughly 40%. Forty percent of the companies in MSCI China, which means H-share companies, they have exposure to the regulation risk. So hmm. that's the reason. That's the reason we have only one third right now. One third of the of the weight in in, in h and ADRs.
0: There's really no decision made based on the listing. Rather, it's just the company and how to get gain efficient exposure to that company. Is that fair, Richard? Okay, let's so say again, I cannot, I cannot fully answer. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I was just I was clarifying that there's no preference between AH or ADR. It's
1: simply looking yeah, yeah, for exposure yeah, yeah, to the, yeah. the company. No preference. No preference.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Maybe we go circle back to uh, just putting the portfolio together as a collection of stocks. How you think about risk? Uh, do you view it uh, relative to a benchmark? Or are you more absolute in nature? How, how do you view that?
1: Uh, for the Mackenzie Fund, our purpose is to uh, generate excess return versus benchmark. So we are benchmark awareness strategy. So we do have this kind of uh, awareness on benchmark. Mm-hmm. And in the meanwhile, we actively manage our portfolio. We have around 70% active shares. So we, oh. we, we very actively manage our portfolio in order to beat the benchmark. By wider margins, and we did it in the last three to to four years. Great. Um,
0: maybe we'll we'll switch now to talk about the current Chinese market uh, and some of the trends that are playing out uh, before us. Um, you know, China was first in COVID, first out of COVID. Although there's been some lockdowns more recently, uh, what can what can the rest of the world learn from China uh, as far as uh, the the experience uh, post COVID? Uh, and do you think china is a reasonable example that the rest of the world may follow or will they will is china unique in this case
1: i think china is, is quite unique uh, in terms of quarantine policy in terms of the r- restrictions on the individual people i think china is quite unique but i, I understand the chinese government has its and uh, has its own problem because the resources China, China's resources of hospital of this of this medical service is quite limited. So, which means if China uh, does not strictly uh, control the COVID nineteen very strictly, the hospital, you know, there are not enough and hospital resources, or medical uh, medical service resources to you know to 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 handle the problem. So that's why we think, and uh, and uh, this China's model is very is is not that easy to copy to be copied, you know, by by other countries.
0: One of the things that sort of came to um, light over the Trump era and then over COVID nineteen again is this like, concept of regionalization, uh, where uh, some of the trade uh, existing globalization the trade agreements have have uh, been under stress. Let's say. COVID-19 sort of uh, put more fuel on the fire uh with uh sort of sensitive industries like vaccine manufacturing that type of thing um and uh and the concept of regionalization one do you agree that regionalization with uh, sort of a Asian uh, China uh, led Asia and America led North America or Americas in a Euroblock does that make sense to you is that how you view the world and then two what implications does that have for for China as a whole
1: uh, I'm firm believer of globalization cause with uh, uh, in china standpoint china benefit a lot from globalization from free free trade in the last in the last 30 40 years china benefit a lot so china is of of course is 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 one of the major beneficiary of globalization and we my personal i personally hope you know and um, um, globalization, instead of regionalization, will become a future trend. However, we in this world, it's quite complicated, and we see the conflict between China and the U.S., this kind of two-power rival, um, especially start from 2008, 2018, the uh, U.S. government put some section on Chinese companies in the high technology space trigger and also trigger Chinese comp- Chinese government to self-supply self-supply is key components in the in some high technology industries such as semiconductor because as we know semiconductor is quite a global industry actually it's, it's not local it's global it's very global but China are sure. weak and historically China highly rely on global supply chain highly rely on it because it's quite global quite open but right now Chinese companies and Chinese government feel very unsafe. Are very very unsafe in the semiconductor industry and in, in, in also in some advanced manufacturing industries. So have to because because of the pressure from the U.S. government, the so Chinese government strongly uh, encourage and support Chinese companies to self-supply, self-supply, self-developer in the semiconductor in other advanced manufacturing. We think uh, probably will continue going forward because of the uh because of this two country you know Mm. conflict u.s and china conflict and personally i don't like to see this happen but we you know i don't know you know but it's possible to happen
0: right maybe maybe the last question on the on the markets as a whole before we get to some recommendations um but What would you say the most common misconception that Westerners have of capital markets in China?
1: Well, that's a very big question. Um, Western investor or Westerner will think, hey, China is the stay-run capitalism. Stay-run capitalism, but eventually it's capitalism, but stay-run government control everything. In a way, it is is right in a way, but uh, I would like to put it this way: China is a mar- still a market-oriented economy, and, and and the private the private sectors, private companies, instead of state-owned enterprise, the private companies provide around eighty-five percent, more than eighty-five percent of employment in China. Of course, we know state-owned enterprises are very important, very powerful. But in terms of employment, only, mm-hmm. only less than 15%. So private companies play an extremely important role in China. And sometimes, and, um, um, I think, the, the importance of private companies and, um, uh, has, has been ignored or underestimated by Western investors. And another thing I would like to say is entrepreneurship. In China it is very strong, very strong entrepreneurship. Because and I spend a lot of time to talk to communicate with Chinese entrepreneurs. I think they have they work very hard and they have global vision. Some of them have global vision as, and some of them have have global ambition because it's first generation instead of the instead of the U.S. Right. European they are. How many generations? Three or four generations. But China, the first generation. And you can tell the first generation, and they still want to try their best to make money to to do something. I think entrepreneurship in China is very strong. It's not, it's not, it's not limited to a small group of people, but entire Chinese people, in my opinion, have stronger entrepreneurship comparing with mature market because you don't need, You guys don't need to, you know, to become so that entrepreneurship because the other side of the entrepreneurship is sacrifice your family time. You
0: know. Yeah, of course, yeah. sure. Um, that is uh, that's a, an excellent answer to the question. Very unintuitive um, that you'd find um, more entrepreneurship in China, but uh, your rationale makes perfect sense. So we conclude these podcasts by getting a series of recommendations from you. Uh, I'll start with uh, one If um, uh, for, for travel. Uh, if, uh, if somebody from uh, Canada was going to visit China, what would be the number one non-obvious place that you would send them? So I'm not looking for, you know, the Great Wall or, or the Forbidden City. Those are very obvious. What would be the, your top non-obvious pick?
1: A very good question. Um, uh, my, uh, for instance, my daughter, she grew up in the U.S. and she went back to, to Beijing six years ago, mm-hmm. and she spent a lot of time because she stayed in Beijing for for almost six years. And and I took her to some uh, countryside, uh, outside Beijing, I think, because Beijing or Shanghai or oh, any any in in a, in a the modern cities, Shenzhen, they are not typical Chinese cities. Sure. They are, they are very, probably not that international, but they are big city, mm-hmm. a mega city. And I think the best way for uh, for the people who, who haven't been in China to understand what's the real China, to go to some uh, small size, small city. Hmm. And no matter that it is, small city, and one, probably... Can go to uh, the, the small city around around Shanghai area in that area because that area is more and also is most advanced economy in China has around hundred million people and go to some small city around that area you can feel how how things works in you know everything will quite will be very interesting. Hmm. Another suggestion, another I'm not saying I'm specific city, but another another name I think come in my mind. It can go to some western, you know, in southwest or northwest, because we're not northwest, southwest, in terms of economy, way behind, you know, way behind Beijing, Shanghai. And you can find some small city there to talk with the people there. That will be, you know, to to, to feel how people, you know, to feel how people think. And I remember once I took my daughter to a small city in in the in the Mongolia because I do horseback riding sometimes. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, and I took her to to a small city in the, in the Mongolia for horseback riding.
0: Sure. And they have a long tradition
1: there, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, and my daughter told me, "Hey, hey, hey, Daddy, I know, I know that company." Oh, I mean, I mean, because we we stop by some shop, and mm-hmm. you know, everywhere in China we don't need. Carry cash. We just use WeChat, WeChat sure. Pay or Alipay because yeah. digital payment is everywhere. Even in in the Mongolia, you don't need to carry cash. You just scan your your WeChat, you can make a payment. But once we an, enter a shop, they don't accept WeChat. They only accept accept cash. And my daughter told me, Hey, that has to be a SOE stay on enterprise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so even in in the Mongolia, uh, most places accept WeChat, but we finally will find one place they don't accept, and it is a state-owned enterprise. So that
0: that that's maybe the best non-obvious place to to go uh, find a place that doesn't accept WeChat Pay. Uh, uh that's great. Uh, how about how about your favorite regional cuisine in China? I know that there's quite a, a difference. Um, region by region, but what, what's your favorite regional cuisine?
1: Um, Sichuan food is my favorite regional cuisine and it's spicy and it, it's, 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 but I cannot eat every day because it's too spicy. So once in a while, once a while I will miss Sichuan, Sichuan, Sichuan food, Sichuan cuisine. because it's so, it's, it's so tasty, but I cannot eat every day.
0: Good. Uh, and maybe the last one. Uh, give us some of your favorite books. They could be investment related or uh, or otherwise.
1: Um, I like some uh, history, technology, and 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 aviation kind of areas. A um, couple of books I think is quite interesting for me. And when I was in, when I was working with uh, Morgan Keegan and in the U.S. in two thousand six, I read a book, "Innovators Dilemma." I think it's "Innovators Dilemma" is Uh, I think it's one of the best books I've ever read about technology, about technology.
0: Innovator's Uh, Dilemma, is that right, Richard? Innovator's Dilemma, yeah.
1: Yeah. Innovator's Dilemma, Uh, the author is Clinton Christensen. I I remember it's Harvard Harvard. Harvard Business School professor. I think it's very, very, uh, from that book, I understand how to analyze, how to analyze a technology company in an unconventional way. Because mm. when I when I at Wuhan University or even Georgetown, we learn this kind of Michael Porter's Five Forces Five fourths analysis. But in that book, they have provided totally different framework, totally different mm. framework. And and to you know, I think and it's very it's very adaptive and in, in, innovative for the framework. I think it's probably one of the best frameworks to analyze the high technology companies to understand how industry change over the time and to understand what kind of company can, can be successful in the different technology wave. Also, uh, the from zero to one by Peter, Peter Tyler, Peter Tyner, Peter Tyner. I think it's also one of the interesting book and I read. Uh, yeah, it's also about technology. It's also about technology. It's also about and um, I think one one word or um, catch my eye is if ask an American in 1960s what does, what of what kind of a car will be in the, in the 21st in the 20, 21st century 80 percent of American back to 1960s will say hey the car can fly but right now you know, the car cannot fly and. Uh, you know, the innovation is only come from the Twitter. The one 140, 40 Twitter, That's kind of ironic. It's kind of ironic, which means, which means, Hey, after 50 years, after 50 years or 60 years, the car is the car, car cannot fly. The performance of a vehicle does not change much in the last 60 years. And the price, does not drop at all. So what's the benefit to the consumer? What's the benefit to the society? I cannot see it for the car industry. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I appreciate both of those recommendations. I look forward to to getting into those books. Uh, But Richard, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was a delightful conversation. Uh, Thanks again.
1: Thank you, thank you, man.